Well, welcome everybody um, to uh, a great event with our guest, Bern Hobart. Um, Bern, really glad to have you with us today. Um, excited about this. I've been following your work for a really long time. And uh, you are clearly very familiar with Gerard, as I think everybody uh, on the call is, at least uh, somewhat. I said it's a little bit of contact. So I think we can dive right into a pretty uh, fascinating conversation about manias and mimesis. And I think the thing that interests me the most about the paper is that it was written in October of 2019. And that timing is interesting because I, I sort of want to know what the 2.0 version uh, of that paper is. Uh, so much has happened. I, you had no idea what would happen in March of 2020. Um, you talked about, I don't know, at least a couple of Bitcoin bubbles, but we didn't, we didn't get what happened over this last year. So um, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Um, but first, just a few words of introduction. Um, this is part of a series that I'm, that I'm starting um, to bring in interesting guests. Um, next month will be Dimitri Kofinas from the Hidden Forces podcast. Um, plan to do one of at least one of these a month and, and record them. Bern Holbart, our guest, uh, has is the writer of uh, one of my favorite substacks called The Diff, which you can find at diff.substack.com. I don't even know, uh, he does something uh, that's really unique. I mean, he writes about the intersection of finance and tech but brings in history, uh, philosophy. Um, I would almost call it a metaphysics of markets at, at, in some ways to sort of uncover, to use one of Gerard's own terms, like some things hidden uh, beneath the surface that help explain some of the inflection points that we're seeing uh, in technology and in the financial markets. Um, and he writes pretty frequently. Um, I don't know how he does it, but they're all there. They're always fascinating. Um, so I, I would encourage you to check out uh, his Substack. Um, the, the format for today is very laid back. I, I think my working title for this is kind of the anti-memetic wine club because the vibe here is as if we were just having a glass of wine after work, uh, kind of a, a fireside chat kind of environment, uh, very casual. Um, feel free to raise your hand if you have a comment. Um, it's, you know, it's cool to jump in and, and answer each other's questions. Uh, Bern and I will chat for, I've got a couple of questions for him, two or three, just to give you an intro to, to you know, to who he is, um, a little bit about the paper. If you haven't read it, we'll just do a very high level introduction. And then at the absolute latest at 630, I would love to open up the floor because I'm sure um, there's, there's going to be a lot of questions after we introduce uh, the, the paper and, and the topic. So just to get started, Bern, um, I, I think... I, I'm, I don't know the answer to this, and I'm, I'm, I'm always curious to know, how did you first come into contact with Rene Girard's work, and what was the genesis of this paper, which you co-authored with Tobias, by the way, um, who, who's not with us today. But So, you know, your first contact with Girard, and then where did the idea to write this paper come from? Sure. So, yeah. And um, you know, first note, Tobias is not worth it with us in the sense that he is in an inconvenient time zone and not that he's dead. Still alive. Good, good um, distinction. But yeah, so um, how did I come across Gerard? I, um, like many people, probably most people who are in tech or tech adjacent, it was through um, Peter Thiel specifically. There was a, an, an early profile of him in um, like 2007 or something, right about the hedge fund mostly. And it mentioned uh, a bunch of really interesting stuff that I decided to look into more. And one of the things that it mentioned was his fascination with Gerard. So um, I went to the local library, picked up a copy of things hidden and um, 
or no, it was violence of violence and the sacred. And I read about a hundred pages of it and just didn't, it didn't click at all. Um, why this was such a big deal. It seemed like a lot of weird, dark anthropology. There were all of these riffs where he's arguing with academics who I also just didn't recognize and didn't have a strong opinion about. And, um, so I dropped it for a while and then, um, I started coming back to Gerard probably, um, six or seven years ago, just, you know, older, more life experience, um, recognized a few more of the anthropologists who Gerard is arguing with, but not, not, um, all of them. And, um, I started rereading it and, um, and part of part of what appealed to me was just that Gerard is uh, an incredible analyst of the writing of, um, of other great novelists, and you know you you will sometimes you can read a great book and realize it had an impact, and try to ask yourself why it had such an impact, and it's that's a difficult question to answer. Like you know that reading, say, Crime and Punishment, can change you, but it's hard to say what you know what in the what in the story what in the ordering of these words actually caused that like why why do these characters resonate and feel so meaningful when other other characters in other books just don't and um so i started doing doing more reading um more Gerard reading and just more more serious thought about his fundamental ideas and you know i started you know like a lot of people i think the the time when it clicks is not necessarily when you're reading him but it's when you're noticing very Girardian dynamics in in other people's behavior and then you realize well you know if if this is true of all eight billion people on earth that I can you know any any of the eight billion people I can observe it's probably true of me just as much so um yeah Girard is he's, he's a very useful um you know very useful checkpoint a very useful way to evaluate your own behavior and other people's behavior and um, you know I think turning back to the the teal thing like there is something very mimetic about people seeing that this guy got rich and is allowed to do a bunch of really contrarian things and so we're going to try to reverse engineer it and what we will do that is read all the source material and um, you know see if we can see if we can rebuild the engine that way and then um, I think you if you read enough of the source material you get the, the stuff about conspiracies and secrets and realize that there's probably other influential stuff that is not going to be put on a syllabus reading list, but but is still important. So, you know, there's um, the 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 mimetic um, effort there sort of peters out after a while. But you do end up um, you, reading reading Gerard is just um, it's a really powerful um, powerful mental exercise. It's a really powerful workout, and um, it has just it's changed the way that I read fiction and um, has has changed the way I look at human behavior. And then you can turn that to the the markets question, and um, I've, I've been fascinated with uh, with markets for a very very long time. And um, I think one of the things that's convenient about them is just you have so much visible information that is always being exposed. Like markets are this machine for instantly interpreting and reacting to every single thing that happens anywhere in the world. And um, you know, you if you are trying to make money trading, you're obviously trying to do that better than everybody else. But your default assumption is, in general, should be that when something important happens in the world, prices roughly reflect that, and it happens roughly instantaneously. So you can sort of use markets as this real time look at what's what's happening. But then they have all of these other features because they are you know this glorious, beautiful machine, but it's entirely made of people and people have their normal human weaknesses and emotions. And um, because everything's so quantified, you can actually look at a chart and see, you can see mania happening in a way that 
you know, you, you couldn't really do just looking at someone's behavior. Um, you can't quite see the peak. You can't see the collapse. You can't see when they're, they're feeling this burst of hope that maybe they weren't wrong after all. And then, oh no, actually I was wronger than I ever thought. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's it's just a, a great source of information on the human condition. I think um, between novels and markets, you've uh, that's kind of your Pareto distribution of if that's 20% of the the material you can absorb in the world, it's maybe 80% of the knowledge about human behavior that you'll get. So um, so yeah, that's that's where I got to to thinking about the two. And then um, in in terms of combining the two, um, that was that was actually Tobias's idea because um, he actually he got introduced to me through a mutual friend because I'd written some things about bubbles and how I find bubbles really interesting. And he had also written some things about bubbles and the idea of bubbles as innovation accelerators that, um, you know, a lot of money gets wasted, but they also bring together a lot of talent. And um, I'm thinking, thinking more about that. Um, I realized that bubbles are this fundamental, important force that they, you can trace a lot of progress, a lot of technological and economic progress back to bubbles. Um, you can look at a lot of booms as happening in the after effects of a previous bubble. So, you know, that's, I think like the super obvious version of that is that um, if you look at the, the internet companies of the 2000s, a lot of them were able to take advantage of the infrastructure that had been overbuilt in the 90s. So, um, you know, YouTube was able to take advantage of lots of cheap fiber because there was uh, lots of fiber that people spent way too much money on in the 90s and Google was able to buy it for cheap. Um, and that that goes back pretty far. Like the U.S. still has some of the world's best freight rail infrastructure, and that is in part because people overestimated the amount of passenger rail demand in the uh, late 19th century and built way too many railroads. But the railroads still exist, and um, in modern terms, what's more important is that the rights of way still exist. Like you just you can't build a you know you can't build a physical thing in a straight line between any two big population centers without running into at least one endangered species or an NIMBY. But um, if it's already built, it still exists and it's gonna be a monopoly forever. So um, so yeah, I think bubbles bubbles are really important and they're just, there are a lot of different theories for why they come about. You know, you can, um, you can talk to people who are sort of, um, I guess you could think of it as like progressive flavored skeptics where they'll say that bubbles are this uh, just profusion of greed. And then you have this sort of rightist or maybe libertarian leaning version where it's no bubbles are always and everywhere just due to an increase in the quantity of money that eventually flows to the close to markets because they are they're able to produce this indefinite supply of things that you can trade money for. Um, and I don't think I think all of the all the bubble theories out there and there are many of them. Um, they're all useful. They all point to something something interesting and important. And then what I think Gerard adds to it is that there is um, just this consistent theme in bubbles that whatever people are betting on was a good idea when it started. And that the people who figured that out were generally really, really smart people who were also really ambitious and just the kinds of people you want to be in charge of organizations that try to change the world. And then you end up with a lot of fakers. By the end of the bubble period, you have everybody making these weird knockoff clones or maybe the clone you know seems a lot cooler on the surface but it's actually fundamentally pointless and doesn't do what the original does or doesn't even understand why the original is so great but what's um you have these two levels of mimetic desire there you have you know one someone who's starting a starting pets.com in the late 90s they really want to be like jeff bezos and then another level you have the investors who really want to have invested in amazon at the ipo Amazon had already gone up, but they can find this other thing. So you have a lot of people who are 
copying each other, copying each other badly, maybe copying their most visible traits, um, sometimes copying their worst traits. Like, um, I think this happens a lot with the sort of cult of Steve Jobs, where like the things that set Steve Jobs apart were um, he's a design genius and he's an asshole. Um, one of those is really, really easy to do. And one of those is really, really, really hard. So which of those do people have more success in copying? It's probably the easy one. Um, and I think you can look at um, you can look at a lot of companies that get copied and try to figure out what is like this core platonic thing that the company figured out or the individual figured out. And then the the question of copying it is not how do you catch up to where they are today, but if you had that kind of insight and had that kind of attitude, what problem would you be solving today? Um, you know, if you were if you were in their position today instead of where they were five years ago. Um, and that's that's I think a healthy kind of copying. So there's this riff in um, in the paper on Google and Amazon actually being deeply similar companies. And the basic idea is that one of the things Amazon figured out was the internet is a really good place to sell things. It's a really good place for people to find products they're looking for. But um, to do that, you actually need to categorize things in some searchable, readable, tractable way. The really nice thing about books is that you have a bunch of metadata already. So you've got the title, you've got the author, you've got the genre, you've got the publication date. Um, you can pull in a bunch of other data about the book. You basically have a lot of the search stuff done for you. And so they were just able to slap an HTML front end on a database of what all the book wholesalers had in their inventory. And then they had to do the shipping, which is you know non-trivial problem, but um, they did it. And and then they they have the core of this working business, and then they can move into less and less legible products. And because they understand what they're doing, they always can move in that direction of collapsing that legibility gap and creating more ways for people to spend money. And then you can look at Google as having seen another case where there's this latent abundant data source that exists, but is not being used in a, um, it's not being turned into a useful product. In Google's case, it was link graph. So, you can look at the set of all sites and the set of all links between those sites as this um, this collective weighted vote on what is important for someone looking to learn about what topic. And um, you know, it does, it's not a coincidence that the Google people came out of academia, where it is um, citation counts are really important, and you can do these algorithms that look at the citation count of a paper weighted by the citation counts of the paper that cite it. And so they sort of had some of the theoretical work done for them, and then had the insanely ambitious idea of doing this to the web, um, which you know, for as insanely as ambitious as it was, um, it was it would have been more ambitious a year later. Um, there, you know, as the web was growing a little bit faster, I think at the time the web was growing faster than hardware was getting cheaper. So um, it was actually like the time to do that is as soon as you figured it out. And with Bezos, it was kind of the same thing of like. He realized the internet was a big deal. He realized it's growing insanely fast. It'll never be growing this fast again. And nothing, nothing, no other trend is going to matter as much as this trend. So they tried to get his company to do something about it. They said no. He decided to go do the thing. And the rest is history. So Bezos sort of bet on the mimesis of, of the internet in general. And it didn't, didn't matter as much what they sold. I mean, books happened to be the thing that made the most sense for a variety of reasons that you talk about in the paper. But he just realized this is a mimetic phenomenon. It's going to continue to grow. And he wanted to get in early. What, what is, um, yeah, sorry. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's a question of how much how much he internalized the mimetic nature of the internet. How much? I mean, maybe maybe there's some of that. Like some of it is just if you look at a line on a chart, and the line is like I think at the time the internet was growing um, two thousand three hundred percent a year. So um, you know whatever is driving that, it is important enough to jump on. But yeah, I think I think certainly one one part of that one part of what drove the internet's growth was that. People realized that it was cool. They realized their friends thought it was cool, so they decided to try it. And um, you know, it's like bubbles. That is one of the things that bubbles do really nicely is that they get everyone to build different components of a particular version of the future at the same time, so that you build everything you need for that future to happen. So you know, everyone who was over optimistic about e-commerce or online media, they start a company in that space. And then everyone who's over optimistic about the ISB business, they start laying cable and sending um, sending CDs to every household. And um, between those two, you know, the over optimistic ISP actually validates the re- the e commerce retailer or the online media company's business by adding more internet users. And then the over optimistic content companies and shopping companies give the the people who newly signed up with that ISP something to do online. So as long as everyone is over optimistic about different different variants of the same thing, they actually end up building something that makes that uh, makes it not over optimistic after all. Sure, sure. And then you know, crypto and Web three in general would be, um, it, you know, sort of an example of how you have a bunch of people building a bunch of different things and sort of riding this mimetic wave. And I think one of the most fascinating parts of your paper that I want to ask you about, and one of the the things I don't think people realize about crypto is how leveraged it is. Right, the, the amount of leverage involved. I just want to talk a little bit about the, the role of leverage. I think there's a really interesting connection between debt and mimetic desire. Um, yeah. And you quote somebody in the paper, I can't remember his name, who says that leverage creates um, legibility, I believe. And the one, my interpretation of that when I reread the paper last night was that um, legibility, what does that mean? Well, it allows us to be able to read who's who a little bit better. And one of the things that leverage may do, in my own words, is to amplify uh, differences, which makes it easier to sort of, you know, see see who's over leveraged and who's not, who blows up. What, what's what's your kind of take on on the relationship between leverage and mimetic desire? Sure. So I think there are two parts of this. There's um, there's the the point on leverage generally, which is that it is. Um, like there's this taxonomy of bubbles where you have bubbles that are a bet on some wild divergence from history. And then you have bubbles that are a bet on sort of the end of history, that things are going to be basically the same way that they were, just more so and more so and more and more predictably. And so if you compare the dot-com bubble and the housing bubble, dot-com bubble is the internet's going to change the way we do everything. That turned out to be roughly true. And here we are on Zoom. Um, and then um, the housing bubble was, you know, nothing's going to change. People are always going to want suburban McMansions. The thing that'll change is we'll get better and better at predicting default rates, and we'll get because we'll we're, we'll be better at that. There'll be more supply of capital going into um, buying new houses, and that means housing prices will keep going up, and all of this will be predictable. We'll have these incredibly elaborate um, financial products that are basically built with some understanding of what the underlying risks of the system are, and that allows them to. Um, enable more leverage than would otherwise exist. So that's that is one piece of the leverage story. The other piece, though, which is really interesting, is that um, leverage is a way that you can um, you can catch up to someone who was smart before you were, but didn't bet as boldly as you're willing to bet. So the way to think about it is that 
in theory, given enough time, and it's going to be a lot of time, but given enough time, if you are always levered two to one and you always own Amazon and Amazon, you never get a margin call, eventually, if you maintain that level of leverage, eventually you will own more of Amazon than Jeff Bezos does because he's not levered, you are. So every time the stock goes up 50%, you've doubled your money, you're compounding faster. And so leverage is just one of the ways that mimetic desire is expressed, that people realize I can't catch up to this person unless I am um, taking more risk than they are, but taking taking the same fundamental risk, like making the same fundamental bet, but doing it in a, a more risky, more amplified way. And I think that's that can be literally true, where you have people who come in late, and the only way that they can catch up, like you know, the only the only way to be a Bitcoin billionaire by buying Bitcoin would be to use a lot of leverage, um, unless you're already a billionaire from something else. So um, they, the late entrants who are trying to catch up, they have to use more leverage to do that. Um, and then, and then I think what that does, like one one piece of one piece one place where legibility comes in is. Um, Sometimes leverage reveals who didn't understand what the risks were. And there is there's this interesting phenomenon that um, people who are early to a business that really takes off, whether it's a category or a company, they tend to have a more measured view of that company or category than, than the most wild, ambitious speculators do, or like the, the late joining speculators. In part because they they have more information, they've seen more of the risks, upsides, downsides, um, and they just have this more realistic view. Like there are things you can, you know, if you're looking at Tesla from the outside, you're not super well informed. You can have all these imaginary opinions on what they could do next and how lucrative it could be. And what you can't know is how many of those ideas are things that Musk put someone, you know, told someone to work on this for three months back in 2015. They tried it out and they found out that for reasons X, Y, and Z, this is actually not a very good move for us. So shouldn't be part of the long-term plan. Um, you can you can have more of this imagination-driven upside view if you're not deeply involved. And then when you're deeply involved, you realize that like a lot of the business is a grind. And you know, a lot of these big tech companies, they have tens of thousands of employees or over hundred thousand employees in some cases. Um it's not like all of them are doing amazing, brilliant stuff all the time. A lot of them are just answering customer complaints or tweaking some algorithm to make it sl perform slightly faster or slightly more accurate or whatever. Um, they they end up losing losing some of the glamour that you would get from the outside because um, there's just there's a lot of schlep involved in building anything great. No doubt. Um, just a reminder to everybody listening: if you have questions, um, please put them in the chat. Um, and I, I've just got one more because this is really for you, not for me. Um, and we talked about this a little bit at the beginning. You wrote your paper in October of 2019. Um, I, I would sort of call it a, a, a metaphysics of markets, kind of trying to, to get underneath the surface and look at some first principles, drawing on Gerard. Would you update anything? Um, you know, what, what has changed? Um, anything new to say since the paper was written? What would you have included if you wrote the paper, you know, today? Um, or... Is it sort of just identifying fundamentals that that are just there? I mean, I always think like how how new is kind of the meme stock thing, right? It was like an unprecedented situation. But one of the things you talk about in your paper is like there were guys like Jesse Livermore uh, in the in the 1920s who was forming pools, right? Of 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 sort of like stock investors, and it reminded me of of Reddit forums. I mean, it's the same thing, but it's just using a different form. Now we have technology to do that. So, you know, to what extent do, do you think that something unprecedented has happened um, versus, you know, this, this people have always sort of been this way and this has been fairly perennial human behavior. 
Yeah, I think for for pretty much any market phenomenon you can name, you can go back and find some some version of it that happened way way earlier, and that um, that was similar. Like usually, um, usually it's not as extreme as the one that you're thinking about, just because the the extreme things are the salient ones. So um, that's that's necessarily what you're comparing it to. But yeah, um, I think there are a lot of precedents for for meme stocks in the twenties and. It is um, it is interesting that like a lot of the meme stock stories, they were they were partly about the company fundamentals, but a lot of it was about how we're all in this together. And I think the story in the twenties was a little bit different. It was more like we're we're like you're an insider to this group of outsiders. Um, we're taking on the establishment, and we can control the prices. We can move RCA stock up if we want to, and then we'll move it back down when we feel like it. So. Um, in that sense, you know, slightly slightly different story, but um, you know, I think I think if you took a twenties era leverage speculator, you know, transport them to um, to early twenty twenty one, get them access to Wall Street bets, I, I think they'd fit in pretty well. I think they'd understand, you know, um, pretty much what was going on. They'd know how this game is played. Um, they they have a sense that it's not going to turn out well for everybody, but it's really fun while it's happening. And then even in the 90s, you definitely had online forums that would try to manipulate stocks and um, that did have cheerleaders and haters and all this stuff. Um, in, in some cases, maybe not as big, um, well, not as big an impact um, necessarily in terms of market value, but um, there were definitely cases where small companies' stocks would just go kind of crazy. And actually, um, because I had been writing about that kind of, 20s era manipulation and you know thinking about other other cases of retail mania i actually i wrote a piece on wall street bets in um i think february of 2020 and talked about some of the the shenanigans on the yahoo finance message board in the 90s and how we're, we're bringing back some of that stuff in um in a more modern way and at a larger scale like you know one of the differences between the 90s and today is that internet penetration and average time online for internet user have both gone way up so Everything that is an internet thing is just a bigger deal because the numbers all involved are all bigger. No, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the paper covers so much ground um, and we don't have a whole lot of time. I mean, I think one of the, the statements that comes to mind immediately is like people think of markets as impersonal, but they they still indulge in ritual in, in your words, you know, and um, you, you don't just find the mimesis in the markets, you find patterns, like ritualistic patterns, um, you even touch on, you know, Satoshi and Bitcoin um, and sort of, you know, that there was this immaculate sort of uh, conception that everybody's now tried to copy. And, you know, perhaps one of the smartest things that he did was to disappear um, so that he couldn't very easily be singled out as some kind of a scapegoat if things didn't go right. So the paper touches on almost every aspect of mimetic theory, which is very broad. So we could go a lot of different directions with this. Um, quite a few people have now joined since we started. Um, so I, I'm going to go ahead and, and step back now. We already have one question from Jeremy. Um, rather than me read it, um, Jeremy, do you want to just jump right in and, and ask it yourself? Sure. Sorry, I'm, uh, I'm cooking dinner as I listen. I'd love to hear a little bit more. Obviously, there's plenty of um, conversation around um, the negatives of bubbles and all that and, and, and the, the boom and bust cycles, right? And people who are over leveraged, I think especially in crypto, but I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on uh, both positive releases at play, because obviously every bubble, it seems like there's great things that come out of bubbles at the end and great companies that get filled. 
but also the the the, the the way that it seems that things are just rapidly improving and these these cycles just are just going quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker and where it will eventually end in your opinion if at all yeah sure so um i think that oh, one would think about positive mimesis would be that um there are a number of tech people who are pretty thoughtful about tech history and i think the the further back you go in tech history and the deeper you go, um, the more that you'll see evidence that um, a lot of the things we think of as new are actually old. And um, I think that's that's especially useful because um, a lot of young entrepreneurs who are in a growth industry, they just can't internalize the fact that eventually every industry gets big enough that it's cyclical. And you have to have some sense of what that cycle will look like because if your business model is built for growth and, you know, your pessimistic case is that we grow is that the industry grows 10% this year and the base case is plus 30%. Well, you're not going to be well prepared for the year that things go down 30% instead. So um, I think and I think that um, the the Collisons have actually done a pretty good job with that. Hold on. I'm on a call. Out you go. Out you go. Sorry. Um the Collisons have done a good job on that. If you look at Patrick Collison's website, he has a ton of stuff on um, ton of book recommendations on early tech history, like semiconductor industry and um, and early software history. And I think that stuff is um, it's really valuable because the chip industry was you know the original growth tech industry and then um, turned into turned into a more cyclical industry and went through some brutal downturns where a lot of the snazzy companies just got wiped out and um, that will happen that does happen to to every industry um, i think turning to the question of the broader social utility of bubbles like definitely true the bubbles bubbles create a lot of value and um, in part the question of whether or not they are worthwhile it partly comes down to discount rate so if you look at them initially they just destroy a lot of capital and then over time things get built like there was some kernel of truth to the bubble and then um, eventually the things that get built become very valuable and are often often worth a lot more than what the initial cost was to to build them. Whether that is you know the wonderful internet we have today, um, even like the housing stock, like the U.S. has a housing shortage. If you compare you know number of uh, if you compare average historical rates of household formation to new housing starts, like we've we have a housing shortage now, and in some ways it's quite fortunate that we've just built tons and tons of housing in the, the mid 2000s. Um, and, you know, going going earlier, looking at things like the, um, say the conglomerates bubble that's written about in the paper, um, that was a case where there just, there were a lot of practices at big companies that were kind of um, just not, not fully modernized. And it was useful to have some force that swept in and that um, caused some underperforming companies to get bought by companies that um, were run by people who, Maybe weren't weren't great managers, but sort of knew knew some of the basics, um, had figured out some of the basics of accounting, and um, kind of understood understood some things about how to how to run a business more efficiently. And we sort of see this happening today with private equity, where um, a lot of the a lot of people who go to work for private equity companies are extremely sharp, extremely hardworking, and um, they are the kinds of people you'd want running businesses. Um, and in fact, I, I have this kind of meta theory that um, if you think about what someone's life path might have been if they're smart, interested in business, and it's like 1955, they might have tried to um, tried to work their way up to running a paper mill or something. And now it would be incredibly uncool to 
get uh, a Harvard MBA and then go work for a paper mill and hope to hope that in 20 years you're the COO. And but if you work for a private equity firm and they buy out a paper mill and you're the the person put on that deal, then um, you that is cool because you're working for a private equity firm. You're still doing the same things you would do in the other scenario. So it, it's basically like this conspiracy to get talented Midwesterners who go to Ivy League schools to go back to the Midwest and run just normal person industrial companies instead of doing something like just working at Goldman trading currency derivatives or whatever. Um, so I, and I think that that's like moving human capital around is really valuable. It's one of the things bubbles do. It's um, you know, a huge function of the financial industry. Uh, like the financial industry moves capital around, but that capital is, um, in, especially in tech, is largely used to hire people. So really the industry is trying to distribute the talent to where talent should go, but you can't do that top down. So you have to do that by allocating capital instead. Thank you. Any thoughts, comments on that? Um, okay, a couple more questions. So if you, if you missed the beginning, this is very, very open. Feel free to jump in. Um, otherwise, we'll just keep moving through questions. Um, David, you've got a question on the tension between access to investors for certain people in a company and walling them off. Yeah, and, uh, you just helped me see with new eyes kind of this tension between where you were giving examples or talking about uh, where there have been in different bubbles. It's almost like a been a discipline or um, you know a, an anti-memetic focus tool of bringing walling off the development team at different points so that they only feed or memetically uh, imitate each other versus letting them have access to the customer base to the investors. Um, to the marketplace, or even to other competitors or, or other imitating uh, companies. I hadn't thought about that that formally um, as a method of, kind of almost not anti-memetic, but more kind of focused mimesis. I wonder if you had more thoughts since you had written the article or more examples over the year, positive and negative, on how that tension can work positively, negatively, when it's generative, when it becomes destructive. Yeah, so I think that there's um, there's an interesting example in finance, which is Renaissance Technologies, the famous quant fund, where they are located sort of near New York City, but um, actually inconveniently far away. So they're they're way out on Long Island, and I think like part of the decision was just that that's where the founder was, and so that's where he put his company. But it turned out to be this way to sort of separate them from the culture of the rest of the financial industry. And um, you can see some companies try to separate their employees' culture from from other companies through um, like sometimes sometimes it's stuff like dress code where um, and this can go either way. I forget um, there was there's some tech company where they um, I don't remember I think they were a chip company where they during the period when business casual was getting really big, they actually made all their employees wear suits. And you could really tell that those people were at this particular company. But the usual way it goes is that you're you're in a business where everything's pretty stuffy and formal. And this is the one company where they have beanbag chairs in the office and everyone's wearing t-shirts. So um, sometimes enforcing that kind of separation can work. Sometimes it is about location. And I think in early tech, there was this tendency for people to... Um, 
they wanted the West Coast tech companies did want to maintain that West Coast vibe. They didn't want to become the next IBM. They they were already viewing IBM as a business in decline. So um, they did try to keep their employees on the West Coast. There's this anecdote about how Intel would send employees to the East Coast for one conference a year that was like it took place in it was something like it was in Buffalo, New York in February. And so it was basically like giving people a once a year warning of if you go work for one of the big East Coast companies, winter is going to be terrible. So come back to sunny California and enjoy. Um, I think you can enforce it that way. Sometimes sometimes you do have levels of secrecy within a company that that might enable that. Like I think you know, Apple has that very um, hermetically sealed design approach to to getting people in different teams. Like there's um, there's some story on Quora where someone had to, he was working at Apple and he was given an NDA and the NDA only covered telling him the code name of the project so that he could read the NDA for Project Purple. And then once he had signed the NDA for Project Purple, then he was allowed to know that it's an iPod. Um, so yeah, they, they had a lot of layers of secrecy. And that does mean that um, you get fewer ideas floating around, but you also get um, more people focused on this one thing they're building. And probably the, the weirder the thing is, the more of a departure it is from the rest of the company, the more that you want them to focus on what that singular vision is rather than making lots of incremental adjustments based on what the market thinks it wants right now. And I think for a lot of things, um, for a lot of those those big projects, whether it's something like the iPod or then the iPhone or um, Gmail, for example, if you did market research, you'd end up lowering your ambitions. Because like if you take Gmail, for example, I think at the time that Gmail was launched, Hotmail had just increased storage, free storage from two megabytes to four megabytes. So when Gmail offered a gigabyte, that was just a, a huge deal. And so they launched on April 1st. People thought it was a joke. Um, but I think if they'd done more market research, they would have realized that they could launch with 50 megabytes. But what turned out to be true was that if you give people what seems like an infinite amount of storage, they will eventually fill it up and then you'll be able to charge them for that. And you also get just tons and tons of data from getting having more email. So um, it turned out to be the right decision, but I think the more that you think about it as how would I do a clean room design of what this should work like? And um, you know, to the extent that there's market feedback, maybe it's market feedback within the company because um, Google was a very email centric company. So people had strong opinions on email. They were really good at using their inboxes quickly and they they prioritized speed in that. Um, like Gmail launched with really great keyboard shortcuts um, in part because a lot of the tools that a, a hardcore email user would have used at the time would have been things like, um, I think it's Pine. It's like a text-based um, terminal-based email reader and it's really, really fast. And if you know the keyboard shortcuts, you can get through an inbox insanely quickly. Um, that kind of feedback of we, this is the stuff that actually matters to us on the margin, and we are the the users who have the strongest opinions, and we will actually use the product. I think that can be that can be useful feedback. But um, in that case, it's not so much not really mimetic. It's not like they're saying, "Here's what I like about Gmail." They're saying, "I wouldn't even consider using the web-based products that exist today because here's what I like about the thing that I'm actually using, and so here's what a new product has to satisfy." Mm. So the couple couple of questions um, that that both touch on culture from Brendan and Patrick. Um, Brendan Teal says this in zero to one: make your team look different in the same way. Um, you mentioned in the in the paper burn. I think one of my favorite lines in the whole thing is that everyone seeks to be the most original looking copy of a model that they don't fully understand. 
right? So we're, we're all copying something, but there are parts of that model that are hidden. There's weird cargo cult thing going on um, where we're imitating all of the wrong things. Um, I think pa Patrick, we'll do Patrick first and then Brendan, but Patrick's question is related to culture. Pa Patrick, you wanna ask or elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. And, and just a little context here and, and thanks Brendan for the, the follow-up as well. Um, so I, I actually had a, a positive back and forth engagement on Twitter. Someone had tweeted about um, there hasn't really been a, a lot of study about the PayPal mafia and just the overall uh, trajectory of the company and, and why can't it be recreated? And I said, it's, it reminds me a lot, a lot of, you know, an NBA super team. Um, you can kind of stack the deck as much as it looks good on paper, but they're not really sustainable over time. Um, so, you know, just kind of digging deeper on that and, and having read the founders as well, um, understanding just the randomness, basically, of, of everyone's story, um, a lot of immigrations, people coming together at like the right place, right time in life. Uh, I, I just think it's impossible to to recreate. And, and yes, you can certainly try. But, you know, I don't know if there's like actually a good example of, of something similar or maybe even like really bad examples, which I'm sure there are, too. Yeah, so on the PayPal Mafia, I, I wrote a piece on this a while ago asking why business mafias are so rare. And, um, you know, there's like there are a lot of ex-Googlers out there, but there's not really an ex-Google mafia. Um, you know, it's not like if you worked at Google, you can definitely raise money from all these people who worked at Google um, or still work at Google. So um, what I realized was there is actually one pretty comparable or pretty comparable case study, which is um, Tiger Management. So was one of the most successful hedge funds, one of the largest in the world, shut down in the year 2000. And then um, basically the founder shut down the fund, but kept his lease and told his best employees, keep working, start your own funds. I'll give you seed capital, keep in touch with each other, et cetera. And now those funds in the aggregate manage far more capital than Tiger Management ever did. And some of them um, individually manage more than Tiger Management ever did. So um, that was a hugely, hugely successful mafia. And um, I think there are, there are two points in common here. One is when Tiger Management shut down, it was because they had um, they were pretty value focused and they had made some bad bets in um, on macro in the late 90s. And then they just owned a ton of old line industrials and um, were betting against tech. And that combination gave them really poor returns in the late 90s. And then, um, you know, had they had they held on to those positions, it would have been a phenomenal performer in 2001, 2002, but they didn't they shut down. So, and then with, um, with PayPal, when they sold, um, there's there's good early Quora stuff. You do want to do some Quora archeology. span um, Back when Quora was invite only, a lot of ex-PayPal people got invited and um, some of them basically put together a sort of informal oral history of pre-IPO PayPal. And um, one of the things they said was they were always worried that eBay, eBay would somehow someday find some way to crush them. And so that's an existential risk because they were so reliant on eBay. And the other thing was because they had so much data on eBay transactions, they could see how eBay was doing. And so part of the reason that they sold was apparently that they actually detected a deterioration in eBay, which would have been a deterioration in their own performance later on and figured we can sell, get a premium now and just go do our thing. So that's one piece is like both companies have this exit that is well before they fulfilled their full ambitions. And it's because they hit a really, really serious speed bump that um, could have been an existential threat and they wanted to avoid it. And then um, the other thing is, if you read PayPal's um, last 10K, 
when they disclose their employee count, it's like, I think it's roughly 150 or 200 people who are in the the Bay Area office, and then they have a bunch of um, a bunch of customer service people in Nebraska. And then um, Tiger was also about 150 or 200 people when it shut down. So what's neat about that is that those numbers are pretty close to the Dunbar number of how many relationships, how many real relationships did you have? Um, people always quoted it as 150, but I think Dunbar gave a range of like 100 to 250. Um, and this, if you haven't read about it, it's a fun study looking at um, primate social groups relative to primate skull size and inferring from that that um, the natural size of a human tribe is 100 to 250 members. Now, um, if you think about what it's like to work at either a hedge fund or at um, a rapidly growing tech company like PayPal, you would often join when you're really young. So um, you probably went to college and then you moved to that city to work at that company. So you've abandoned a lot of your early social ties and then you form social ties, but you're working all the time. So the social ties you form are not people in your neighborhood or you know people you bumped into at the place where you get long lunches every day. No, it's people who work with you, people who work with those people, et cetera. So your Dunbar number gets fully saturated only by people at that institution, and then they all leave. And um, because of the timing, they, they generally leave with enough money that they can do a lot of different things, that they don't have to work, but not enough money that they feel like they're done and they've accomplished their life's work. So they, the ones who left with a lot, they fund everybody else. The ones who left with a bit of money, maybe they, they know that they could start a business. They don't have to pay themselves a salary for the first year or two. So they actually have a little bit of personal runway. And that, that starts the cycle of all these people starting businesses. So I think that's, that's why they're rare is that good companies are hard to kill. And so the only way to get a mafia is um, a company that is like lucky enough to get killed. Although the luck thing is tricky. Um, until recently, it was true that um, the total value of all the businesses in the PayPal mafia, while it was big, was actually smaller than the total value of Google. So um, it may be like this is you know really small sample size, but it may actually be like the mafia story may be cooler, but the um, the story where there's no mafia because the company never sold or never shut down is probably the story where those people make a lot more money. Cool. Uh, Brendan, anybody else? We've got about 13 minutes left. I've got plenty of questions, but I want to keep the floor open. Yeah, mine wasn't really a question, just a comment on uh, separating your people from investors or other companies. So, yeah. OK. Yeah, so you know, this question, um, you know, Tiger, Tiger calls to mind all of the different um, investors that are imitating Tiger. I mean, they, they've just in the last few years, they have a very specific model. Um, you know, I, I had somebody tell me six months ago, like that the numbers work, like they're, they're, they're running sort of on math. Um, there's stories about them, you know, never having met a founder and sending them a term sheet, um, you know, while the founder's out for dinner and, you know, telling them he's got, you know, 12 hours to, to respond or something like that. And, you know, the breakneck speed, I think that's all kind of changing. It just makes me wonder when it comes to imitating these, these models, it seems like, if a firm like Tiger or a really good investor would have certain parts about what they're doing that they want to hide or that they want to be transparent. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but like this, it, it, there's something that, because you know, you, you'd mentioned like we don't fully understand the models that we're trying to copy and to what extent are 
certain investors, because we're really talking about largely about investing in markets today. So I'll, I'll focus on investors. Um, to what extent are investors like welcoming imitation? And in what ways are they trying to sort of put forward a front, but keep sort of their, their most valuable secrets to themselves? And, and what, what are the consequences of this sort of weird dynamic of imitating things that we might not really fully see? Yeah, that's a good one. And I think it's a, it's a big topic. So um, you have, I think you have a couple things going on there. One is that there is just this tendency for, um, for a lot of investors to share ideas. And um, I think that's, you know, it's somewhat, somewhat healthy. You can end up with, um, could end up with a lot of crowding, but, you know, a lot of investors, they, they want to know what the, what the case against their view is because they'll lose money if uh, they don't know it and it turns out to be true. Um, so you do have a lot of ideas being shared. There, there was a time when, um, I forget where Tiger is located, but it's like um, in the, in the like 2017 period, I, I was telling someone about a stock and he said, oh yeah, that's a, that's a 40 Park Ave name. And um, what he meant was like, there are all these Tiger spinoffs that all were located at 40 Park Ave because that's where Tiger's original office was. And um, they, they all talk to each other. They all know the case for this company. They all have the same case and are using roughly the same way to think about it. And um, they all owned it. And, you know, that's, that's great when they're doing well, they're raising money. When they raise money, they add their positions. And so the stock goes up. It, it's not so great when um, the stock goes down and they all have to liquidate at once and they're all pretty levered. So, or they're all somewhat levered. So uh, it goes very badly. So you do have, you do have a case of um, crowding like that. I'd say in terms of investors, you know, how much they disclose. Yeah, they, there's definitely some back and forth there. So at one level, um, they want to be transparent. They want to be transparent enough that they can make the case that their process is repeatable because what a lot of hedge fund investors are looking for is some repeatable, predictable source of excess returns. Um, and if you, if you tell someone, well, you know, I, I think really hard about what's going on in the world and then bet on what the future will be like. Well, we don't know if you did that and got lucky. We don't know if you're brilliant. We have no way to reverse engineer that process. So they often want to provide some kind of legibility to their investors to explain how this works. Legibility also helps with internal scaling. It does mean like if you have some process that works really, really well with software companies, maybe you figure out what parts of it analogize to say retailers and then you spin up a team doing that, and now you've um, you've been able to expand, but you've also expanded your monoculture a little bit. So you know, think, if you think about these companies in similar ways, but they are fundamentally different, um, that can that can run into problems. And often, if you were able to convince yourself that these businesses are fundamentally similar, it's um, it's probably because they're both doing well at the time. And then um, when they do badly, you learn that they do very they do badly in very different ways. So you can run into that problem. I think there's a there is another layer of, of indirection or misdirection that happens less on the discretionary side, but a lot more on the systematic side, because with systematic investing, where you are building an algorithm that is going to consistently trade some asset and make a return, um, a lot of the work goes into, um, well, a lot of the work goes into things like cleaning the data. Um, that turns out to be a really big deal. Um, but some of it goes into pursuing a bunch of different ideas, finding out that 95% of them don't work, and then you find one thing that, for whatever reason, works pretty well. And um, so, you know, most of your, your output is a very small function of your input, which means that if someone knows what you're doing, they can save a lot of time in implementing it. So 
um, that that makes quants um, systematic traders just incredibly cagey about what they do. Um, and sometimes it's pathological. I'm actually um, working on a piece that I'll be writing about a pretty well-known quant firm. And um, I found an article talking about one of their founders where he um, they refused to give an interview and um, refused many times to give an interview. Um, the, the journalist said they they called four times. Um, but also he refused to disclose the names of the co-founders of the company which is insane because they're on the website. So it's like just this insanely reflexive um, insistence on never telling anyone anything because everything you tell them, even if you say, here's what we don't do, well, that's a clue on what doesn't work. So the more you respect this person, the more that tells you, you should be looking at some other opportunity instead. Um, so they, what, what they will sometimes do, what some quant funds will do is they'll have fairly simplistic strategies that work or some of them will. Um, but then if you ask them what they do, well, they'll say, we aggregate X, X terabytes of data and we use all these fancy machine learning algorithms and we have all these brilliant people. Um, sometimes that's part of what they do and it certainly sounds cooler than what they actually do. But if they've actually found some fairly dumb rule that actually works pretty well, it's way better for them to tell people a harder version of it um, rather than an easy version. And that's actually... That is a useful heuristic that goes beyond finance because um, you'll see this with tech companies when they talk about, when they give you technical specifics on what they do, like um, Facebook has done this um, on their machine learning for detecting the quality of comments and the tone of comments and things. And Google has done this with a lot of their AI stuff. When they disclose things, it's almost certainly something where you couldn't copy it except at their scale. So um, you know, Google is not going to tell Google is never going to say anything publicly that could make Bing better. But they can say publicly things where if Bing had 30% market share, this would be a really good idea. But at 10% market share, it's actually a huge waste of money because it just um, it's so expensive, it doesn't scale well. So that's like, um, I guess, like a useful way to read this stuff. It's a really cynical way to read the way that tech companies talk about their technology, but um, probably accurate to say anything they're telling you how to do you should not actually bother copying. It's only the stuff that they don't tell you how they do it, where there might be some fairly simple magic trick that could in principle be discovered and then you'd be able to um, achieve some level of parity with something that they do. You're probably not gonna build the next great search engine, but um, maybe. Gotcha. Um, I see Pat Patrick's got his hand raised. We, we've got a few minutes. Yeah, um, may maybe quickly, just the other big current event is this whole like Elon and, and Twitter deal going on. T to me, it just seems like more of a, a psychology battle and, uh, you know, negotiation tactics or philosophy versus like a financial transaction. So we'd just kind of love to hear you weigh in on what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, maybe one way to look at it is that um, a lot of rich people own media outlets. Um, they often own media outlets that they have some kind of affinity for, um, and you know, in or or that are just really recognizable brand names. Musk obviously loves using Twitter as a product. I think Matt Levine has done really good coverage of this, and he's pointed out that um, if Musk does buy Twitter, he will be the only member of Twitter management who actually uses and likes Twitter the product. Um, but I, you know, Musk is always hard to figure out because he does have a weird personality, but he also knows that that's an asset. So you have to wonder for his behavior, how much of this is Elon Musk, the person making business decisions, and how much of this is Elon Musk, the celebrity, doing celebrity things that continue to improve the brand and that might be useful for other future business decisions. Like it's, um, 
it's kept him in the news a lot and kept him a lively topic on Twitter. Um, probably helps sell more Teslas. Um, so I don't know that it's worth $44 billion. Um, I don't think it sells $44 billion worth of Teslas, but um, it does help with with some of that. Um, and But I, I do think that it, to the extent that you want to bring it back to the memetic question, you know, if he looks at, at Bezos and says, okay, Bezos gets the post, um, Times is not for sale. You know, what are the big media outlets that you could actually buy and have influence over? And Twitter happened to be available and happened to be one he was familiar with. And um, and I also, I wonder if there is some kind of, you know, kind of runaway dynamic where he buys some Twitter stock as a troll, people get mad, he decides to escalate, which is, you know, if you are, if you're a troll and you're not worried about getting banned, which um, the SEC has not been able to ban Musk, um, if you're not worried about getting banned, the right thing to do is always keep on escalating because you can make people matter at you faster than you can get mad at them. And then they'll eventually do stupid things and you'll have a really good time. Um, so I think, I think you can view um, some of it as potentially trolling, just, you know, the kind of troll you can do if you're a scented billionaire that is not available to the average person. Um, and then there's, there's always the weird possibility that like Twitter is notoriously not that well run a company like their, their launch cadence has historically been pretty slow. They've, they fixed some of that. Their monetization has historically been weak. Like they've always had this huge cultural impact that is not reflected in their financials. And Facebook is kind of weirdly the other way around where for all their cultural impact, the financial impact is a bigger deal. Like people, um, it's funny if you go back and read, um, there's this book, The Facebook Effect that came out right before the IPO. That's a story of Facebook. And it opens by talking about the really wonderful, amazing, positive impact that Facebook has in the world by affecting the outcomes of elections. And it's just talk, it's talking about a Brazilian election that I think no one in the US remembers in 2011, 2012, and how people used Facebook to get attention for their candidate and it was able to build this groundswell of support for someone. So um, you know, Facebook's been doing that for a long time and is probably not doing that much more of it than it was, or you know, maybe you know, pro rata for its share of usage and time, maybe doing less because more of that time has moved to Instagram. So um, in some ways, Facebook has has become a bigger financial phenomenon relative to its cultural phenomenon status. And Twitter has remained big cultural phenomenon that just as a financial thing is, has been unimpressive. And, you know, Musk, Musk was able to start a car company that reported an accounting profit. And um, it's been generations since someone has been able to do that in the United States. So um, clearly knows something about business, he was able to get launch costs, um, launch costs had stagnated, I think from the, the 70s through um, SpaceX, and um, now they're going down faster than before. So, um, you know, he's, he's smart and able to tackle really hard problems. And it may be that he views monetizing Twitter effectively as in the category of problems that are too hard for most people, not too hard for him. So he'll do it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, we, we can't really forget um, the, the weird mimetic rivalry thing going on between Bezos and, and Elon, right? Like as soon as the news breaks, Bezos gets on Twitter, um, is got some great memes, gets political on Twitter around the same time that Elon does. So we could talk about that for a while, but I, I've got a whole theory behind that. Um, Bern, thank you so much for, for doing this. Um, man, your paper came out like, while I was in the depths of, of writing my book and it was hands down, head and shoulders above anything else that I've ever seen. Um, with mimetic theory applied to financial markets. It's the best thing out there. Um, if you haven't read it yet, um, I, I highly recommend it. 
And you've just been so generous with your time. I, I've, I learned a lot tonight. I hope everybody else did too. Um, I know you got a family uh, waiting for you. Um, so be respectful of your time and just want to thank you again on behalf of everybody here. It's been great. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate the questions. This was, this was a really, really fun discussion. You bet. Thanks again, Byrne. Um, everybody else will have uh, Dimitri Kolfinas from Hidden Forces next month. And I will circulate this uh, to the premium subscribers in the next couple of days. Have a good night, everybody. Cool. Thank you. Yep.